Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Policy on Demand. Ken Kuykendall, PwC's U.S. tax leader and tax consulting platform leader, recently spoke with Pat Brown and Nita Asher, both PwC International Tax Services partners, about SHIELD, or the Stopping Harmful Inversions and Ending Low-Tax Developments proposal, which was included in the Biden administration's Made in America tax plan. That's a mouthful. The proposal, which would replace BEAT, has raised questions for companies about immediate next steps and future planning. And if this conversation sparks comments or questions for you, we'd love to hear from you. The interview was recorded outside the U.S. Capitol, so you may hear some sounds in the background. Here are Ken, Nita, and Pat. Pat, Nita, great setting out here. Perfect place to start talking about international tax proposals, right? Absolutely. All right, so we're going to start out here. We're going to spend some time talking about S.H.I.E.L.D. And when I saw this in the Green Book, my instant reaction was thinking about Marvel, the Avengers, that sort of stuff. But I don't think that has a lot to do with tax policy, right? So so let's go jump into it. So for both of you, maybe, what are you hearing from clients as it relates to the S.H.I.E.L.D. proposal? I can start with, um, at first, there was a bit of excitement to see a proposal that would potentially replace the BEAT, the base erosion anti-abuse tax. But as we're learning more about the shield, I think the excitement's um, tempering a bit and companies are trying to understand how the proposal is gonna apply in practice to which companies, also like what type of information they're gonna have to gather in order to determine whether or not um, their financial reporting group is subject to SHIELD. Yeah, I'd say for me, Ken, the the, uh, initial um, euphoria is too strong of a word, but excitement for a lot of US headquartered companies in particular who have been unexpectedly subject to the beat, and now, hey, this is gonna maybe make it go away. That's obviously a positive. You dig into the details of the shield though and what you see is a provision that and i'm sure we're going to talk about this more is really quite harsh and you see that as well in the revenue estimate so the revenue estimate for repealing the beat which is obviously going to cost the government revenue and replacing it with the shield is a net increase of almost 400 billion dollars over 10 years so you know this is not a provision for the faint of heart this is really you know big time in terms of revenue raising on the international side yeah and the scope of it's still open to be defined if you will but maybe with that as a backdrop Nita, if i could ask you are companies looking at trying to model any of this up right now or trying to take a look at what it means at least I think modeling uh, the shield and other proposals set forth in the green book is definitely top of mind for companies. Um, as you pointed out, the scope is still to be defined or determined. Um, on the U.S. multinational side, we see some companies are considering whether they need to uh, potentially defer beatable payments or waive certain payments in order to see how the shield proposal evolves. With inbound companies, foreign parented companies, you do see some rough assessment of whether or not the group has certain low tax members, which I'll sure I'm sure we'll um, dig into a bit. And you know, with that, they're utilizing the trigger rate of 21%, um, which is based on the uh, guilty rate set forth in the green book. And you know, the shield rate could potentially be lower if multilateral agreements achieved with Pillar 2, but until we know more about that particular exercise, I think companies are looking at the 21% trigger rate. Helpful. And maybe, Nita, 
let's dive into that a little bit deeper. If you can walk for just a couple minutes here and maybe help explain how Shield's intended to work and the details around it. I will do my best, Ken. <laughs> uh, with what we have in the Green Book, we, we understand that the Shield applies to direct and indirect payments made to low-tax members of a worldwide financial reporting group. And you know you have to determine once again whether or not you have a low tax member. That's determined based on the Shield effective tax rate or Shield ETR formula, which we need more details on how timing differences and losses are going to be taken into account. But if we assume you have a low tax member in the financial reporting group, direct payments made. Um, by a U.S. corporate entity or a branch with the U.S. trader business to this low-taxed member uh, would result in a full disallowance of the deduction to the extent you have a non-deductible payment, let's say COGS, made to a low-tax member. You would then find um, deductible payments in the amount of the COGS payment made to the low tax member and disallow that deductible payment, even if it does not relate Nothing to, to the yeah. COGS at all. And Nita, sorry, just mm -hmm. to jump in, even if it's not to a related party at all. That's so true. they actually can use the COGS as a hook to go after unrelated party payments. It, it's just a mechanism to essentially defer yeah. the payment, yeah, right. defer the deduction, yeah. Right, and then there's also, the Biden administration's concerned about indirect payments. So let's say you have an in, a payment made to a high tax member, but by virtue of having a low tax member in the financial reporting group, you could have a partial disallowance of the payment made or a deduction made um, to a high tax member based on some sort of ratio that's gonna look at the group's low tax profits and compare, and compare it to the group's you know, full or entire um, profit. All right, so this question that comes up in the context of that is we're spending a lot of time with OECD BEPS, um, pillar one, pillar two, a lot of pillar two is this minimum tax deduction, which seems to have an intersection with shield, but, but maybe not really. So Pat, can you maybe uh, pull apart those two? Sure, it's, and it's, it's actually a really fascinating issue. So, you know, the OECD's pillar two has consisted, broadly speaking, of these two main concepts. One of sort of a top-down minimum tax, and they call that the income inclusion regime. And then, essentially, for countries that haven't adopted an income inclusion regime, they have what they call the undertax payment rule. And that is really intended to replicate what would be uh, if you had an income inclusion regime in place from the top down. So it's really intended to replicate that result on sort of a lateral basis. So a lot of us, myself included, when we read The Shield, we said, oh, this looks like the OECD's Pillar 2 under tax payment rule yeah. because it's de about denying deductions to countries when there's not a minimum tax regime in place that affects the, 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 the affiliate that receives the payment. Now, that's true, but only up to a point. The reason it's true only up to a point is because, as I mentioned, the undertax payment rule of, of the OECD really intends to try to replicate the results that you would have if an income inclusion regime was in place. Nita mentioned the shield is actually quite a bit harsher. It outright denies deductions completely, so it doesn't really try and mathematically get you to the result that you would have achieved if there was an income inclusion regime in place. Rather, it's really intended to be a forcing mechanism to say, you will adopt an income inclusion regime, other countries, you will do this, because the alternative is not to try and do the equivalent, it's to do something much harsher. 
And that's what the shield really, really contemplates. This again, this total denial of deductions. For example, even if so, need to mention the 21% rate. If you have a payment to an affiliate in a 19% rate jurisdiction, well, that's below the 21% rate. You potentially face a complete denial of deductions in that fact pattern. The undertax payment rule of Pillar 2 wouldn't do that. So, so there is a real difference there. And again, it reflects this underlying philosophy of the shield as a mechanism to really force other countries to adopt an income inclusion regime. And maybe staying on that theme, can you talk a little bit about the delayed effective tax rate, or the delayed effective date, I'm sorry. Sure. Yeah, so the delayed effective date, there's a sort of couple theories on this, both of which could be true, and I suspect both probably are true. One, you know, the SHIELD contemplates a really broad grant of regulatory authority uh, in the Green Book proposal, and there are a lot of reasons for that. So you need to mention timing differences, you know, dealing with losses and things like that in other jurisdictions. How do you sort those issues out? Uh, and that's going to take some time. And, you know, the Treasury says to the Congress, essentially, in the Green Book, hey, we can figure that out. Just give us a grant of regulatory authority to do it. Well, to be sure, I'm sure Treasury can figure it out, but it's going to take some time. These are going to be complex rules that Treasury is going to have to draft, put through a proposed regulation process. So there will be time necessary for that. So that's one element of this is just there's a lot of detail to be filled in. It'll be filled in through regulations, and that'll take time. The other aspect of this, which I also, again, think can be true and probably is true to a certain extent, is we expect other countries, when we adopt the shield, who maybe have been holding out and saying, you know, we're going to wait and see whether or not we're going to have a minimum tax regime. When they see the shield potentially now saying, okay, we're, it's time, we need to introduce a minimum tax regime. Well, if the shield gets enacted into law later this year, and it were to be effective January 1st of the following year, other countries have very little time to react. So part of this is, you know, give Treasury time to write regulations, and another part of it probably is give countries a chance to react to this so that they're not faced with the shield being applied immediately, but they have the opportunity to make changes to their laws. And that contemplates the shield being a catalyst, if you will, for some of those other minimum taxes. Exactly. A yeah. um, couple other questions here. So one, for, for either one of you, the scope of this is a little bit undefined, and one of the worries that you hear out there right now is the scope of this could be a lot broader than what's contemplated. Uh, can you maybe speak to that? Sure, yeah. So the scope of it, uh, you know, again, when you think about philosophically and you ask the question, you know, are we applying this to low-tax jurisdictions? We're applying this because there are payments to low-tax jurisdictions, essentially protecting the U.S. tax base. And again, when you think about the undertax payment rule and the way people were thinking about the undertax payment rule if the U.S. were to do it, then you'd say, okay, fair enough. I think I can understand that concept and what that would mean as I look at my structure. But for example, so here's a classic example. You've got uh, an affiliate in a jurisdiction that clearly not low tax, like France, but you've got a lot of NOLs locally in France. And so you're not gonna pay tax for a number of years, right? Well, is that within or without the scope of shield? It's a payment to a jurisdiction where you're not gonna pay tax, but it's not a low tax jurisdiction. So what does that mean, right? How, how is the Treasury, for example, going to deal with that from a regulatory authority standpoint? We don't know the answer to that question, right? And then the other thing that Nita mentioned, again, this is a really complicated concept to think through, but the idea of you're making a payment to a high-tax jurisdiction and you're really paying tax there, yeah. but you have other affiliates in your structure that are low-tax. So you're thinking, well, from the standpoint of the U.S., I'm fine. All of my payments come out from the U.S. to high-tax jurisdictions. I'm really paying tax there. No, you have to go beyond that and really think about the entirety of your structure and where you might have low tax. And there's that definition again. What does low tax mean? Does it mean a low tax jurisdiction? Does it mean a jurisdiction where you lost money for several years? How is that all going to work? 
Yeah, so so much unknown here, but the breadth of it and sort of the impact of it's so strong. I guess my, my two final questions, and it's for both of you here. Number one, what questions are you hearing from clients? And number two, what recommendations do you have for clients that are trying to deal with this? I can start off with questions. I think companies are still trying to digest what's in the green book. We have two and a half, maybe three pages of material right now. And also trying to gauge how it's fitting with the pillar two um, discussions. I think there's a lot of interest whenever you talk about the shield, you have to talk about pillar two as well. Um, and then also we have seen other proposals like the Senate Finance Committee framework that um, doesn't propose repealing the beat. Instead, it would tighten the beat, you know, for example, increase the beat rate in order to allow for some Section 38 um, credits. Mm -hmm. We see other proposals to remove the base, the 3% base erosion percentage. And so, you know, we're getting questions from companies. Is it the shield or could it be uh, changes to the beat? because we have this delayed effective date coupled with shield and so it's you know it's those questions and helping companies navigate it you know the best we can do is stay informed yeah. um, but there's so much uncertainty in this space right now it's just keeping you know abreast with with any and all developments I will tell you traveling around the country the question I get is is this really gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> right right I don't know <laughs> <laughs> right so I think the question that I get most frequently from our US headquarter clients is is this really mean like the beat goes away and I don't have to worry about the shield because it doesn't appear to apply to me and the answer to that is it does appear that the shield would not be applicable to US headquartered companies and so from that perspective that's good news now I always add on to that a cautionary note uh, and it ties into Nita's other point. I get a lot of questions from clients as well as, where should I be looking? Like, what should I be paying attention to to figure out where all this is going? And unfortunately, as we sit here today, the answer is you have to look everywhere. You have to look at the Hill. You have to listen to what Treasury's saying. You have to pay attention to what's happening at the OECD and try and piece these things together and try and understand sort of what of these proposals is Congress likely to pick up. Going back to the shield, if the shield doesn't get picked up, you know, in its pure form, but Congress decides they're gonna take something that sort of looks a little bit like the shield, looks a little bit like the bead in some respects, certainly Congress could choose to do that. Well, would that apply to US outbound companies? Well, we don't know. We know the bead applies to US outbound companies. So there's just sort of the question of what's this gonna mean? Is it really gonna happen? And how do I stay on top of where it's gonna go? And again, the, the last question is sort of the hardest to answer because you really have to be looking everywhere at once. And what about a couple of recommendations you got for folks just in closing? Well, one thing to add, um, something that I forgot, Ken, is that we're also getting a lot of questions about treaties and how, you know, our U.S. bilateral treaty, um, you know, the ability to move our treaties is going to impact the ability for S.H.I.E.L.D. to be enacted um, and also, you know, how it um, um, interacts with Pillar 2. So I think the treaty aspects um, are very important with this proposal and, quite frankly, other proposals as well. Recommendations, once again, um, model and stay abreast of the developments. I know we sound like a broken record, but that's the best thing to do at this point. Um, with each development, try to model a bit to see how it impacts your structure. So the biggest thing that I have conversations with clients around in this space is they'll say to me, well, what should I do? And you know, how do I kind of get the message across that this is going to make it a lot more expensive for me to do business in the United States and it's going to create disincentives for me to be a significant investor in the United States. And my response to that is, 
that's exactly what you should be telling members of Congress. You know, help them to understand what the real world impact of these proposals are. We find a lot of time, and this is not a criticism to be sure, a lot of times with our clients, there's an assumption that they think policymakers already understand a lot of these things. You know, and I think policymakers sort of are, in many cases, quite hungry for this real world information. Like, what is this actually going to do to impact investment and jobs? And so we shouldn't assume that that is something that policymakers understand. We need to get in there and tell that story. And with respect to the shield, the story really is the way to try and mitigate your, your um, exposure to the shield is to mitigate your investment in the United States. Yeah. Is that really the right answer from the Congress's perspective? That's a question, right? It's certainly not the policy objective of all this. To right? be sure. Yeah, to so be sure. Right. Well, I, I would just say in closing, a recommendation from my standpoint is communicating within your organization. We as tax professionals sometimes assume everybody knows what's going on, understands the broader business implications of some of these proposals and just communicating within the C-suite, communicating with your board, helping them understand some of the challenges we all might see as far as headwinds coming at us. So, Pat, Nita, thank you very much. Appreciate you sort of unpacking the shield a little bit for our viewers here and look forward to continuing discussion on the topic. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more Policy On Demand, check out the link in the description of this episode. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.